0: Sons, I'm
1: G'day everyone, my name's Robbie Turner. Welcome to another episode of Axon's Unleashed. I'll tell you what, if you've been listening to our sort of 45, 50 episodes so far, do not miss this one. This is going to be an absolute cracker. Um, I've got to, It brings me uh, great pleasure to bring uh, Anthony Harry, Harry Moffat on board. Now, I've never done this before, so please just give me sort of 30 seconds or so. Let me go through Harry's sort of profile here, and it'll be a really fantastic intro if you haven't had a chance to meet the man, the myth, the legend himself. So, uh, <laughs> Harry uh, recently retired from the ADF after almost 30 years, most of which was spent in the Australian Elite Special Air Service Regiment as a team commander and a team specialist. He served in 11 active deployments, including being wounded in action in 2008. Harry completed his time with the SAS as the Human Performance Manager. He's now a retired psychologist and runs a human performance consultancy, Stoughton Group, working with sports teams, the military and industry, and he also remains a bit of a cricket tragic. Harry, welcome to Axon's Unleashed, mate.
0: Thanks for having me, Robbie. Good
1: on you. Yeah, mate. Um, how's things sort of going? I was sort of just sort of speaking off camera. You got uh, you know yourself located down in Melbourne now, and I guess as a bit of a bottom line up front, what's it like being a civvy? Like, what's it like being on on the other side? Because I guess one of my little my one of my little sayings is that yes, we spend more time out of the military than what we do in the military. So you know, what's your and I don't know, you've been out for a couple of years now, but what's it? What's the sort of feeling like being a civvy?
0: Great. I, I love it, mate, and I, uh, I, I, I think the the longer I have been out, uh, the more comfortable I am, and you meet some great people, make new connections, and build new meaning and purpose in your life. So uh, I'm loving it. It's I, in a lot of ways. I started off just treating everything like a, another mission, and planning and uh, executing and now I'm much more relaxed you know I'm happy to turn up a little late and uh, maybe <laughs> not shave every second day as you can see so.
1: <laughs> Mate when I first met you back in 2005 um, you were far from shaving and doing all that sort of stuff anyway so you actually very, you look much more clean cut than what I sort of remember.
0: I, I remember, mate. Yeah, I, uh, I probably looked like I'd just got woken up from underneath a bridge or something.
1: Yep, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but that was sort of back in the back in the bad old days. Um, this is a this is a question I ask everybody, mate. Where did you grow up, and why did you join the military? Because thirty years under your belt is a is a fair stint. So I'd love to go back to
0: the start. Yeah, well, I was born not far from here in Williamstown in in in, in Footscray Hospital and. Uh, you know back in the days when Williamstown probably wasn't a multi-million dollar suburb yep Um, and I was born to parents of service my mum was a nurse lifelong nurse my father was uh a, a, was in in the navy he served you know 30 plus years in the navy so I didn't really have much say in it I don't think and and the military history goes back a few hundred years in the Moffat um, family, um, the the lineage of David Moffats that um, that go right back to the Royal Marines. So you know it was always in my blood, and um, I, it was exciting. I, I loved it. I, I, I my, my father's open days in the army, any chance to dress up in camouflage in in, in uh, camouflage paint and a uniform yep. and throw a, make a turn a stick into a gun and play armies. <laughs> I, I loved it. So I think uh, it was always in the narrative. uh, But in 1980, it's like an origin story, I guess in 1980, I saw, you you might remember Princess Gate, the uh, 22 SAS, um, the Iranian uh, hostage, the Iranian embassy hostage in London, that burst onto the, the world stage. Uh, through the media, you know, on the front page of the newspapers and on television. And I remember seeing the images of these guys hanging off ropes and um, blowing into the embassy there, that which was 22 SAS, the UK um, SAS. And that, that really set my mind on fire. And I think from then on, even though I dallianced with going to uni, doing psychology and architecture and these other things, I think uh, that that really set my journey on uh, in a concrete way. How old were you then? Uh, I was 12, and, and that's probably around the time I really started to grow an, an understanding of what you know, having yep. a future was, I guess.
1: Right. And, I mean, noting the fact you're a psychologist now, you know, some 30, 35 years later or so, whatever it is, were you thinking about helping people and understanding one's mindset and the cognitive abilities of the human brain back then?
0: Oh, uh, not really. I I, I, I I grew a curiosity. That's about as far as it got. I, the, that that incident or that period, uh turned me to reading and because i wanted to know more about special operations and and you know and i I remember reading a book called the rescuers it's been difficult to find and i wish i had kept it but it was that it rated the top 10 uh sf units in the world and it was it was us uk german french israeli uh, a few few others the the seals were in there and the australian sas was was in there as well and i that kind of that that that's set me on a journey to find out more, and I, 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 there was nothing on uh, Australian SAS. There was uh, the Commandos and and their uh, their origins here in Australia, particularly the independent companies work in um, in, in Timor and and north of Australia, SOE etc. And uh, so I guess uh, I, I, in my quest to look, I found all this other stuff, and that's uh, made me curious, and and uh, and uh, I I. I um, come across some writings by a guy by the name of Percy serity Stoughton's actually named after uh, a philosophy that Percy serity, uh wrote um, and that I, I guess that that then set about you know as I said, a journey in which I ended up thinking a lot about um, the psychology of performance not in any kind of academic way just mm. kind of you know backyard type of thinking um, and that's that's continue to today i'm just as passionate today about it love it mate it's
1: a great topic um you would have no doubt picked up on the term axons in the first instance. You know, I love it yes. that, you know, mindset, so everything's about mindset. So, you know, when axons are part of the part of the neurotransmission system in the brain that carries a spark between the neurons to fire the body into action, you know, to be successful in sport, to be successful in what you and I did, to be a successful pilot, firefighter, truck driver, whatever it's gonna be, if you've got the right mindset and you've got the right passion for something, you will succeed. So Excellent. it's a, yeah. a no brainer, you know, especially when you're working in the property wealth creation space like we are. If you are shit scared about about getting yourself into debt for instance you are not going to create financial freedom for yourself so you've got to have the right mindset around it
0: yeah absolutely and I look I have yeah, had a, a, some exposure with some family offices and um, fund management teams and uh yeah it's it's uh gets pretty nerve-wracking at times of
1: course mate of course not not for the and at the end of the day mate if it was easy everyone would be doing it <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> those things that we find most valuable and those things that we find most rewarding are often the most the, the toughest things that we need to be able to you know o- yeah, overcome yeah so you yeah. joined
0: did you join the army straight out of school at 17 like i did i did mate yeah same yeah. as you and uh i, I left uh, finished year 12 uh quit my job and um on my Eighteenth uh, birthday, joined the uh, the military. Straight
1: up there, mate. What was that like? Can you can you cast your mind back to Kapooka in the early days, sitting there getting your head shaved? I mean, from your because I had zero military experience in my life. I was the first one. I mean, both grandfathers were in um, in the sort of World War Two. No one went to well, no one went to Vietnam per se. So I missed a whole generation's where the gap there, and it just wasn't something that was spoken about. I didn't even know about my grandfather's military history until after I joined. Um, yep. So I, didn't, I did not grow up thinking I was going to sort of be, be in the military. There was no cowboys and in Indians Indian shoot 'em ups where I was in a small country town called Port Pirie, a couple of hours north of Adelaide, just just across from Coltana, by the way. So yep, you know no, the really quality places <laughs> that,
0: are, that are up through there. Through there a few times I've been around that area a few times, mate. Yeah. Right,
1: there you go. Yep. Um, so I had no idea what it was like to go through Kapuka, but I, I get a sense you were, like, you were like that mission you spoke about when we first sat down. You knew while that you knew while you were there. You knew what the, what the outcome is that, that you were trying to achieve. And away you go. But what what was it like for you anyway?
0: Oh, I loved it. It, um, it was probably the first time. I was pretty anxious as a child. I still am a little bit, um, but I don't I don't mind that. It keeps you energized. But mm. I, I guess Kapuka was the first time in my life I felt very confident and competent and capable. I think very challenging you know learning all the basics of infantry minor tactics and marching up and down the square all brand new even though i I felt prepared for it um but I I, I kind of took to it like a duck to water I kind of feel i I, I don't think I'm overreaching here but uh or overstating it and I think it performed really really well or I was very solid I thought. And um, feedback certainly indicated that. And I really loved it. And I loved the team environment. I played sport all my life. And I I loved AFL and and basketball and cricket. Um, But there, there was just a real sense of purpose. And it it met all my expectations, uh, made some lifelong friends who I still keep in contact with out of 11 Platoon, Bravo Company, 11 Platoon, uh, and had a real soft spot for a, a couple of Uh, corporals and sergeants that I'd probably characterise as, if I can say it, arseholes now. But but I I loved it. I loved the discipline and I loved the hard and harsh feedback and uh, responded really well to it. I think you talked about mindset before, Robbie. You know, I think if you go in prepared uh, for really, you know, tough environments and tough conversations and tough love, so to speak, uh, I think it provides you a bit of stoicism and a bit of uh, comfort that uh, when it does come, you just don't take offence, take notice, and uh, and it's all to improve you or make you a better person. I trusted, and I and yeah. I feel that was accomplished.
1: Love it. Um. Very coincidentally, 11 Platoon Bravo Company is a young 17-year-old. Is that right, as well, mate. Yeah, yeah. Very very coincidentally. Probably a little
0: after me, mate. I would have thought.
1: 1990 for me. What were you? Mid 80s. Eighty six, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. You're about four years, four years ahead of me. So it was definitely SLR and green sort of stuff, wasn't it? There was no cameras, no mate. style, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Back in the back in the bad old days, um, did you did you have an upbringing that sort of brought you into that space that you knew you were getting involved in? Because once that once that bit of harsh feedback started coming my way, as a very cocky and confident seventeen year old, played senior footy when I was fifteen back home, you know, in the rough and tumble of AFL, you know, country leagues, I thought I was a man already, but I was very much just a little boy that was just overconfident. And when I got the first bit of feedback, you know, from my sergeant providing the same, you know. Arsehole nature, I suppose, to to characterise it like you did for the betterment of making us into men. I broke down in tears and was back on the phone to mum. Bloody bore my eyes out. Did you ever have a moment of weakness like that, or you were just like, bring it on, boys? This is what I'm here for.
0: Yeah, I definitely. I think I, I think you would be heartless and maybe soulless if you didn't um, have be, if you weren't homesick. Some de- in some degree, to some degree. Uh, and I remember, you know, a couple of you know sleepless nights, and a, um, pro- probably even a few tears. I've got no doubt, um, and uh, you know, wanting, you know, longing for mum's embraces. Uh, we're getting screamed at down the hallways, and <laughs> uh, or getting take, you know, ripped out of bed for the. But again, I, I it was, it, it wasn't hard to contextualise, and I think, you know, the the, the basics of, of, uh, you know sharing this kind of common suffering with uh with those around you uh, it gives you great comfort and uh that the the, the, the the team aspect really provides some resilience you know i like in another group i work with the mission critical team institute i hear uh surgeons and medical staff talk about the privilege of suffering mm-hmm. and uh i i i think i had a sense of that i didn't know what it was called but this sense that uh, it's a privilege to go through those hard times if you are going on to accomplish something great. Um, it's a privilege, as you know, to to go through the rigors of of uh, you know special forces or or um, harder next level military training. It's it's a privilege to have gone through that and to be uh, to be counted as one who who was 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 you know selected or or, or seen as suitable. So. I think I had a sense of um, that—that the 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 hard road is is the good road, and um, the great rewards come from that.
1: You would also agree you don't have those realisations till after (laughs) you're not thinking that during the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely, and and, which is great, and I mean that keeps me going today because I wonder what things I'm missing, and I got no idea what concepts and constructs I'm going to discover right up to the bloody last breath, you know. I I, and I, you know, I, I love being around um, young men and women who who are on that path, that hard path. And sometimes it's not for, for good, but um, it, it energizes me because I think that's the road of discovery and self-discovery. Um, To take the, to sit back and coast, it's a choice in life, but um, certainly not one I energizes me or I'm attracted to.
1: For sure. I heard a saying only just recently, we should always be learning in all ways. I was like, yeah,
0: definitely. That's a belter.
1: Um, Straight after Kapuka, mate, where'd you go? Up to one of the battalions, no doubt.
0: No, no, I was. Uh, I'm not sure if you had the same experience. We were. I wanted to go to infantry, but we were basically told where to go, and uh, I had the choice of um, aviation and SIGS. Um, so I went off to SIGS, uh, and it wasn't. It wasn't a very. Um, it, it wasn't exactly the start I wanted. I ended up in uh, in a typing pool in here in Melbourne at um, the School of Signals doing cipher codes, Morse code, and typing. So, uh, it wasn't it wasn't the exact start I wanted, but uh, it had its lurks and perks. I was one of two blokes in a class of thirty women, so uh, it, it was a soft landing. But we had. Um, but I, I then went to Townsville. I opted for Townsville, and I ended up being attached to one and two four. RAR, and that kind of scratched my itch, but I had a sound, you know, I had a sound understanding of the journey I was on. As I said, I, I was uh, all all roads for me were back to Campbell Barracks, and I'd already spoken and been, I suppose, mentored in a way by uh, a very qualified Sig from from one five two. Uh, Martin Studdart, and then he his message was twofold. One, do you want to be an operator or an officer? So these are the two paths. I, I, my uni degree, I, my year twelve was 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 good enough to to maybe take the other path. And that, but I wanted to be on the teams, in the teams. That was where my heart was. And the other decision he uh, comforted me with. He said, uh, to overuse the term all roads lead to the beret. It doesn't matter what core whatever and that, I didn't understand that to start with so I was pretty comfortable you know a little bit um, a little bit regretful I didn't get uh, into the battalion but uh, again it didn't it didn't impede me whatsoever
1: from my experience um, watching so so many of your selections and my my selections go through especially after my last posting down at sohQ I'd say it's rare for someone to go through there. And come out the other side not having an infantry or at least arms corps background yep. so you know that's that's a real testament to you mate um right there the first thing that sprung to mind there where you were sitting down doing all that sort of cryptographic work i'm like little did you probably know how that would help you down the track
0: oh absolutely i i came fit for purpose because our job you know the regiment's job in main job really was uh you know kind of geopolitically or geo strategically was uh long-range reconnaissance um, sitting in a under a hoochie or an umbrella, pissing rain in the jungle, and tapping away on a Morse yep. on a Morse key. That was that was it. So I came, uh, I came, and also there was crypt, the cryptographic side of it too. I could also work in headquarters and understand, and that that continued all the way through my career. In fact, I always felt like I had, uh, I was ahead of the curve on other two ICs or team leaders and whatnot. Um, just in my understanding of of that kind of you know the, the communication network, the complexity of it, and therefore understanding the battle space, because the battle space, mm. the neurons or the axons and the, all that part, it, the neural network is um, is via the ether in the, our communication systems they connect all of the hardware and all of the humans together.
1: Yeah, certainly. Um, and as, as you're probably aware, I had an um, artillery background before I went down to SOCOM. So the whole saying, no comms, no bombs. That's so, right, you know, yes. You fight, so you're way ahead of the infantry,
0: guys, because you knew maths. <laughs> yeah, <had> that too. <laughs>
1: um, Hey, what year, what year did you do your SAS selection then, mate? uh
0: 1990
1: okay so it was only four, four years later so you were, you were still relatively junior in the military but I suppose you because you had, had a good upbringing that you knew that was the case you were like right hey, let's sort of dust off the dust off the boots and get over there and, and let's let's do this properly
0: yeah it was the year I reckon a year too early I, I struggled early on in the in the regiment I, I, look I did performance wise I, I think I was solid but I but it, I was like the duck Swimming, you know, the, the legs underwater just going a million miles an hour, but um, no, I it, well, it was early, and uh, it's it, uh, yeah, it, uh, you know, my advice to people now is be patient, um, kind of your mid 20s when you know your body, you know your injuries, you've been through a partner breakup or two, you yeah. may have a mortgage, you may have realized that the the the, the fast car that you bought was a mistake and you should have put it in a house or something, just a couple of social, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said for social resilience. We talk a lot about physical and mental resilience in these um, populations, but I think there's a social maturity and, you know, cultural maturity too that I, I think can really benefit, um, particularly in the in the very complex uh Warfighting domain that that um, you know the new operators are coming into. I was back in Perth earlier this year doing you know human terrain uh, training, and and it's it's if I, I can't I can barely imagine some of the uh, briefs uh, receiving some of the briefs when I was there in 1990. It was uh, it's hugely complex and uh, and and intellectually it's very challenging. I think.
1: And as we both know, mate, it got more and more complex over the next few years and decades, quite frankly.
0: Yep. Yeah, definitely.
1: um, When was your first trip overseas?
0: Uh, Well, first operational deployment was uh, 2001, which was uh, after the trade towers collapsed. We had relatively quiet in the 90s, although there were – uh, the the deployments that were going away then to the Middle East and Africa and and into into uh, Southeast Asia were teams Small, mostly, yep. and I think the biggest one was Somalia, the, the gerbils in 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 um, Somalia in ninety three four.
1: Where were you when that sort of um, horrific pictures broke across the world? I, every uh, m- most people that I, most military people that I know, like time time stands still. You're like holy shit shit, you know the, the world just got real.
0: Yeah, I was actually doing a Ask batten class. For a bunch of UK coppers um, out the back of Folkestone, yeah, so I remember it well. And uh, my my Welsh ex Royal Marine Welsh mate Bungie Williams come in, hey mate, come <laughs> and have a look at this on the telly. And we, we went in there, and there it was. So uh, and I kind of knew I'd be heading home pretty soon. Yeah, no doubt. Um, what was that like, mate? When you went over, sort of that that first
1: trip over in two thousand one. It's sort of the first proper deployment of Australian forces, I suppose, to go into a you know, major conflict zone.
0: Yeah, it was it was a boy's own adventure. I don't want to make light of war and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, it was easy or or whatever, but it really was an adventure. Um, here was the, the first time personally, and I think for all of us really, there weren't too many um, guys with this kind of operational experience. Heading off to be tested if you want to put it that way or to deploy and employ our our training and skills and uh it was exciting small e exciting um very very serious uh you know the briefing and the strategy and the planning and the and the purposefulness meaningfulness of the of the deployment was was uh great as in you know it was it was substantial um, significant mm. so uh yeah, and we we hit the ground, and we were, we we barely got any build up. We were out in the mountains in small teams. You know, they, they were the hardest nights of my life. You know, on foot patrols on the border, um, watching um, you know the the bad guys coming back and back and forth across the, the border, and doing um, you know uh, uh, re- reconnaissance for rangers, for American soft, for British soft. Uh, and our guys were also involved in those those that work up there chasing Osama bin Laden. Essentially, mm. that's the the headline. Freezing cold, no doubt. Yeah, freezing cold and stinking hot, mate. You know yeah, the base. you know yourself the uh, the dynamics in Afghanistan. There's, there's yeah, it's unbelievable. The snow one minute and then uh, the next the next night you're, you're sweating it out on the on the dashed
1: there's some very iconic pictures i remember of those first initial sas patrols right up there in the northern parts of afghanistan just covered in snow and i was like fuck that yeah <laughs> mate it was
0: i remember one night the coldest you know that i'm sure there was many more i looked at the at the weather station and it was uh, um uh wind wind was up at around minus 30 we're on the side of this cliff. I, in the morning when we uh, we got down there during the night, I looked back up and down. I thought, how the hell we didn't fall, or someone didn't stumble. You you would go to hundreds of meters to your death with a seventy kilo pack on.
1: Mm.
0: Anyway, we're sitting on the edge there, and we had the optics and old mates. Well, we, one job we were doing, um, a, a US soft compound was getting rocketed and and. Um, mortared and shot at every evening so we we went up into the hills the Americans were a bit averse to uh to getting up in the hills themselves for any more than a you know 24 hours so I remember being up there I was on the edge of this Cliff literally uh with a with an optic and just watching through kind of a, a, a number of different optics and the uh the glass in the in the viewing portal is ice cold obviously and it's probably minus whatever and it just burns into your eye because you're sitting there watching for minutes at a time and then it's seconds at a time and you've got this massive ice cream headache getting hit in the chin with minus 30 and uh, i remember getting into my bed for pick after picket that night i had full p diddy you know um uh uh, puff jackets and whatnot on into the sleeping bag boots still (laughs) and just chattering away nil sleep it was and cold, too cold to snow and too cold for ice.
1: I've had lots of people ask me, I'm sure you have as well, like, why do they put people through such tremendous amounts of stress and mental resilience training during selections? And I'm like, well, when you're out there and it's for real, you can't put your hand up and go, I'm out. Do you, That's right. Do you feel yeah. like you had to really dig deep into some of those things that you um, no doubt had to display during your own selection? And then, you know, the following years, you know, as you, as you go deeper and deeper into the, the skills mode and you become, um, you know, mo- muscle memory about just how to do things, you just become that, you know, really pro- you know, professional and competent operator. But even then, like, you, you don't, you can't, you can't have ever experienced all the, all the conditions and something gets thrown up like you've just described there and it would have been bloody horrific. So you would have had to dig deep, it, deep it, mate, it, to get. You take that. great
0: comfort from having completed uh, the selection process. I think, and and that gives you a, an extra confidence, and uh, you know, and I, I often say there is there is there's an arrogance, there's a small a arrogance. I think there's a there's a requirement to be able to have supreme confidence when you need to have it, um, to be a hundred percent committed when you need to be even though every fiber in your being is saying don't you know run the other way or do something else i think you need you need to have gone through that or well, it's a helpful passage at least to have gone through
1: yeah um what was it like cuz we all landed together in 2005 when tk was first established that's right. And there was not much there. We were all sleeping in tents, getting rocketed every night, <laughs> wondering yep. if, bloody, that was going to be your last one. Um, <laughs> as the, as the task group came together, having done um, a couple of those trips whether it was just your force element alone, as the task group came together and you saw the task group evolve over years and TK evolved and, you know, there was quite a, quite a few people there at any, any one time, how did you sort of um, – how did you navigate that change and – your own command leadership management style and having to integrate others and the you know the the um, in, um, natural in, indigenous force that had to come out with us on all those missions that would have been like being out there by yourself in that sort of adventure to then link in with all those other elements would have been would have been another challenge in itself also
0: yeah there there was no doubt by it's particularly by you know 2013 2012 my last one that I saw a dramatic change we all we all did um, you know, I guess that part of you longs for it in 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 a kind of special ops way. Longs for that autonomy and that isolation, so that you can just do those special missions. I suppose. Mm. Um, and we lost that along the way, you know, 2005, we we're still doing foot patrols, we we're doing DAs, we we're doing vehicle patrols, we, we did uh, air ops, you know, we did op jumps and um, and we still did uh, some other more clandestine operations, etc. So we were doing full spectrum. And in fact, 2005, I, I think, you know, if I look back over the whole, that, that was my favourite time in the regiment. I think both in the unit, back at home and in the unit deployed there was a real love and care across that the unit the, yeah you know, there was you know there's always differences between personalities and whatnot that that never goes away That's but lot, i felt life, like man, the unit was super super stable and super um caring and 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 supportive of each other i thought there was if if you wanted to say a brotherhood i've never really kind of bought into to that that kind of mentality but And we had full spectrum operations and we worked with enablers and we worked with uh, the rest of the Defence Force. I thought it was a nice task force size. As it became bigger and and more conventional over time, I think we got sucked into that. I think both SF units got sucked into that a little more and more and our specialty and our special in the special forces uh, became a little more diluted and became a little more conventional and 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 certainly from a leadership perspective, I think that I don't I don't begrudge all you think Australia has great leadership and great command. If we if we really spare it back, I know there's a lot of criticisms and that's easy, but um, it's bloody hard to to be doing it. But I think uh, the clash of conventional and and special forces was writ large. We, we were mostly uh, not utilised in our in the best way we could have, and in fact, you probably could have taken. The special forces out of um, Afghanistan at one stage late in the campaigns or campaign and uh, put in um, a conventional elite infantry and they could have and probably would have prospered. I would have thought so. Yeah. You know, a lot in that um, response, I know, but there was certainly a shift away from, you know, the unconventional special operations towards a more elite conventional um, operations, I th- I think.
1: Just hearing you say that, mate, promised me to ask a question, the whole um, strategic corporal, as it's called, you know, doing those sort of actions at that at that team commander level or, or team specialist level and then having the 10,000-mile screwdriver come in with a magnifying glass over the top of you. How, how did you find any, any or some of that?
0: Yeah, look, I, I had a I had a good sense of that. I actually really like Charles Krulak's work. He, uh, it gets it get, does get a bit of criticism, and it's warranted because it is a a theoretical kind of stance. And there's a lot of and people call it an oversimplification of his three block war uh, and strategic corporal type of um, I suppose theory or you know um, concept. But I, I love it. I think it's a really nice way to teach. Um, new operators about the complexity. So, a yes, the strategic corporate. Every decision you make in, in a, in a, particularly in a special operations sense, uh, it's always been the case. Um, you know, right back to Nancy Wake, probably our proudest, greatest special operator of all time. I, I, I would argue, uh, had a strategic impact just by being on in France. Uh, Albert Jacker had a strategic impact just by being on the front. He even um, garnered uh, from the hierarchy Jacker's mob, you know. So uh, having that understanding and teaching, being able to teach that now is, is um, you know, is great to have that that hindsight. And the three-block war concept, if anyone listening hasn't heard of it, I'd encourage you to have a look, that it talks about you don't, you're not only – required on battlefields these days to be <clears throat> a competent warfighter uh, and uh, competent in your martial skills, but you need to be competent in humanitarian aid and, and aid to the civil service skills and connecting with the, the civil population. You also have to have a diplomatic arm where you need to do key leader engagement or diplomacy with people you might not like or people that you're fighting one minute and then you're doing diplomacy. So, you know, we, we, there's just too much nuance in the battlefields these days. And the strategic campaign is not about killing the enemy at all costs anymore. It's about bringing the enemy to a position where in some cases where you might need to negotiate with them and, and, uh, and talk. And, you know, I mean, the, uh, the, the examples are too numerous around the globe, globe to go into here. Indeed, mate.
1: Um, one of my theories about being a half-decent leader anyway, I'm keen on your thoughts, is being that genuine and authentic chameleon. I think it speaks a lot to what we were just speaking about then. You've got to be up like how you and I are talking now won't be the exact same way as what you talk to someone else. And certainly I talk to Daniel here, my executive producer, in a different way than when I talk to my sales team You know, or some of my se- senior managers. Do you sort of, um, do you just sort of go, go by that theory that Part of being a good leader is to understand the communication styles that you're having with the with the with the respondent, so you then you can act act accordingly without losing your own soul and your own character as well.
0: Yeah, it's a perfect way you've summarised it, mate. I think I I would refer to it as a, as a kind of adaptive agility or, a, or or an agility. So, if the best way I can explain it is. You, 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 to, in the military, you talk about being a leader in a hierarchy, and that's you know that's warranted at times, and it needs to be upheld at times. The strict hierarchy and a chain of command, and then and then we can talk about in teams operating in a flat structure, and that that brings its own kind of uh, nuance as well. But I think the real art is not in either having one or the other, a bit like fixed and and growth, growth mindsets. Mindset. So I'm yep. not a big fan of one's bad and one's good. They're both two different things and that they need to be deployed. In. And if you think of the hierarchy as, you know, T upside down and the and the flat structure down the bottom, um, it's it's your leadership and communication agility to be able to move at any point between pure hierarchy and you know directive control command to flat you know mate having a beer whatever that entails and being able to build up enough probabilistic models in your head to understand when the right and the wrong time to use both are and i think that um you yeah, know the military can tend to produce directive command driven individuals and that's necessary in war fighting we can't have people negotiating whether they cross the bloody street or not you know if you're told to do it I can do it you know mm. that's that that's an that's reason. just how it goes and and for better or for worse but when we're back in barracks and we're trying to understand why guys are upset or having marital problems at, from 10,000 kilometers away um, yet the last thing you need to be doing is being directive you need to be that um, open transformational type of leadership style so I think it's an agility and 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 the same could be set for for mindsets you know and humans are not, Uh, Kind of didactic in nature, we're complex uh, and emotional. Um, So things are good on a two by two on a on a on an MBA lecture, but humans unfortunately look more like more like the universe, you know, with all or or a new neuron. Um, You know, complex and hard to unpack.
1: Love it. Uh, One of the things we've got as part of our Axon business model is, once people get accepted into our long-term coaching, they need to watch a video of me explaining a whole bunch of stuff about the process of building a house and how it is we we help them and the risks that are involved. And they've got to consume about an hour and a half's worth of videos and flick through the PDF. They've got to make a bunch of notes and then come and give us a back brief. Now, for some of the civilians that we that we work, like you and I, understand the power of a back brief that transmit versus receive sort of thing. And I've heard you talk about this before. So um, when I when I talk to a civilian, I'm like, I need you to not just pay your money and then go away and digest the info. I want you to come back and you demonstrate to me that you actually have received properly what I've been able to transmit you know, to you there. What are your sort of thoughts on, on the importance of making sure that as a leader that we absolutely know what we have transmitted has not just been received, but it's actually been received and the intent of that guidance is actually fully un- understood
0: Yeah, no, it's good. I've got a saying, as you probably alluded to there, that transmit doesn't equal receive. And uh, just because you say a thing doesn't mean the person heard that thing or got the intent. And I think that's the great beauty of a back brief amongst other functions that it it play. And I think there's utility, and you've used it really well. I think there's utility in in asking people, excuse me, in a a civilian context to, uh, to understand or bring their own back brief um, I don't see it very often. I'll talk about it a lot, but you know the 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 the, the position to understanding someone else's position, or that the way forward to to understanding someone else's position is probably fifty percent transactional um, communication, which we need to get information across, and linear um, decision making can go ahead, um, but also concentrating on. The um, less transactional, the informal discussions. You know, even just by it's it's an old mental skill that we all have and we all know and we all understand. We just don't practice it with the same discipline, or that we do uh, with a bench press or a or a deadlift, um, where the technique is really important toward you know to gaining strength and functionality. But there's a there's a psychological mental skill called uh, priming. And it's well known. We all know it. And so when we prime, we we set someone up neurologically, hopefully, in an, in an approach mode where they're receptive and open to what we're going to follow up with. Uh, and uh, you it, it, whereas coming in too strong and not priming someone in the right way um, in negotiations or even just one-on-ones um, can put them into an avoidance um. Uh, mind uh, neurologically, where they are defensive and etc. And that's a sim- such a simple thing. But if you get it right, it can amplify res- you know the, the impact and results. So what does that mean practically? It just means asking a few questions. What have you been up to today? you got any family how are they going you know what do you what do you do on weekends for a break you know they ask them about the things they really love the things they're into and then ask them you know ask them the question what 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 are you expecting out of this and that can take 10 or 20 or 30 seconds it doesn't need to be much and the the more you practice that and the more you inculcate that into your your communications the the better off you'll be uh, every single time i think we rush Sometimes as leaders to results and performance and metrics and numbers etc. and we kind of forget about the human. But um, that priming, whatever it is for you, uh, basic as it is, you just you just don't do it enough. That's that's what I would say to everybody listening. And and you're not very good at it for most people. Yeah.
1: Um. If you're a listener and you've been speaking to me, you talk about veteran entrepreneurship, starting your own business. You know, getting to a point where you can find out what the world needs, find out what you're good at, find out what you can be paid for, then you know that that's effectively you've got that little triad of, of happening there. But at the end of the day, you need to be able to provide a service to someone and then they reward you by paying money. So it's all about being able to lower buyer's resistance per se by having these genuine and open upfront conversations whereby you don't feel like you're selling anything. You genuinely are providing a service to someone who genuinely
0: needs it from you. Like yes. that's,
1: that's, the, that's the, the, the great place to be, isn't it?
0: yeah i think it's dead right there's so much transferability in that across the business yeah
1: mate tell us quickly um i've read your book 11 bats very very interesting i love one of the lines anyway as a as a as a guy who got a bit of a jtac background as you know you're getting the guys to come down off the hill and come and play cricket with you after they were saying how rubbish you were and they they declined that that option <laughs> and then uh you sort of took care of that behavior um afterwards so they would have been their last game of cricket so mate where did, where did it all start from Pe- people are probably wondering what, what are you talking about Robbie so just tell us the tell us the origins of, of 11 bats in a quick little five minute spiel
0: about how it all evolved yeah, so the uh, 11 bats, it uh, was my habit to collect uh, to, to take a cricket bat on each tour that I went on over the period of the Afghan campaign, uh, 11 deployments, including Timor and and Iraq as well. Uh, a bat on each deployment at the we'd play cricket on those deployments with the bat and I'd get everybody on the deployment to sign it. Sometimes it was a whole troop, other times it was just small team. And uh, I've got this curious collection of 11 cricket bats and we, we tour around and, and do speaking and have a lot of fun and drink some beers. It's been great. And uh, they were on display at the Shrine, Shrine of Remembrance here. A Beautiful display. I was quite nervous, but it, w- it was unbelievable. I, 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 uh, I, was, I was glad I'd said yes. And I was approached by a book house to say, do you wanna write a book? And I resisted for probably two years until Tom Gilliatt got me really drunk and paid for a meal at the Kelvin <laughs> Club here in Melbourne. And I said, uh, I relented and said yes. And and so uh, I've got a bunch of journals and whatnot together and started the writing process. I'm so glad I did because it was probably one of the most rewarding and enjoyable experiences I've ever had. I, I'd love to do it again. I don't know whether it had the the same um small s success that that the 11 bats had um and the story you know that the the bats the books aligned in um 11 chapters one for each bat and um kind of go a little bit into my life my passion for cricket and and um the deployments and um the the story you you talk about mate is um i think it's uh bat number seven it might be or is it six uh, no, sorry, it would be bat five. And that's uh, when we were playing cricket in the Cod Valley in northern Uruzgan. And uh, as yeah. we do, we stop stop in the middle of the valley in a vehicle patrol, set up a bit of all round defense. And then because we're out of range of rockets and bullet, bullets, we'd um, play a game of cricket and do some, you know, kill the time and do some communicating. Anyway, our interpreters used to listen to the bad guys on uh, on motor rollers, we're playing cricket. And uh, the interpreter called me over and said, hey, Harry, they're, they're watching you play cricket. And I said, oh, is that right? Are they, what are they What are they saying? He says, oh, they reckon you're rubbish cricketers. You know, they were, they were sledging our batting and bowling. And, mate, the, the pitch was pretty average. So we didn't make us look very good. And I said, is that fucking right? Is it? Well, buddy, get on there and tell them to come down and play us in a game of cricket. And uh, and so, the, you know, long story short, uh, he got on there and invited them down, and they declined, citing that we'd we'd bomb them if they come out of the hills, which mm-hmm. we would have, and mm-hmm. we did anyway later mm-hmm. that night. So uh, they should have come down at least for one last game. And uh, <laughs> I think I, I I even said to them, oh, I'll come down and we'll fight hand to hand. You know, just we'll, we'll, our toughest guy against your toughest guy. We'll make an octagon, and so that it was curious. The bats the bats are remarkable in that way. Um, you know, not only games of cricket, but they inspired a discussion with the Taliban, which was which was great.
1: It's funny, even though I did my three SOTG trips and a couple of them at the headquarters level, I didn't know that was going on. So I was very insightful to read after <laughs> after all that time, mate. So no, good on you. Wooda. You've got to be able to bring that little bit of Aussie humour and that Aussie spirit just to sort of break up some of the, you know, really shitty times that you've no doubt endured as well.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Yeah.
1: Tell us about how you transitioned into the human performance manager at the SAS, mate. That's a really interesting role. You were doing that as a civilian, I take it?
0: No, no, no. Right. So we, yeah, so in 2013, after I hung up the helmet from the teams, uh, went across to, a, you know, a, a fledgling kind of uh, in, innovation cell that we had. And I went away, I went away to, uh, I, did a, I did a bunch of uh, cross briefs at Bragg and Hereford and whatnot, and then uh, went to a couple of sports um uh, Organisations in the in the US and here in Australia, and I just it just opened my mind. It blew my mind at how poorly we were preparing and and uh, how our not only the selection was pretty solid. I'm, I, I'd say we've got to be happy with our selection process. It needs a bit of polishing. There's no doubt about it. But in terms of how guys were working out in the gym training um, the kind of loads and the repetitive nature of a lot of the injuries we did nothing for mental health almost zero i went and spoke with our sites and said oh, how much how many people come through the door and they sheepishly kind of go well not many you know only the ones that have to uh and we still don't do mental health very well so and and forget about cognitive skills training and understanding how how we think and make decisions there was as little of that going on nothing on emotional. Yeah, and the list goes on and on and on and Nothing to do with professional development. No deliberate, purposeful. Uh, a lot of the stuff that was happening was tacit, passive, and default. Just whatever you were told to do, get on and do it, and learn along the way. And so then, that I, I wrote a paper and 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 uh, took a proposal to. At the time, the CO and just said, I think we can do this so much better. Here's what I've seen. Here's what I'm thinking. And he basically gave me the mandate, and we set up the human performance cell. And I think it was the first one in Australia. Uh, I, I, I'm happy to be told differently. And um, it was tough. It was fucking hard work. You're trying to convince people in the gym that they're training wrong. Um, that the that that workout that they've been doing for 30 years is wrong or or you or the technique might be wrong or it might be doing you more damage than you think um that training twice a day every day all week was probably not the best idea um that you weren't spending enough you weren't doing any recovery (laughs) recovery that's Mm. a buddy you know so and so's but uh uh, you know, that it was okay to lay on your back and put your legs up, for example, something really silly, you know, but for 45 minutes after you finished or or, or going to a sauna or, or just sitting still or whatever. So, yeah. and we were doing nothing socially, nothing philosophically and not a great deal advanced uh, psychologically either. So, I, you know, I could talk about this all night, but um, that was that was the framework I I kind of set up, and um, you know it's it's quite different now. But that's I, 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 As I said, I went back early this year, and I'm really proud of what's the, what the human performance cells um, doing in Perth. Uh, it's still pretty leading edge. It's uh, and that's uh, put some very good uh, thinkers in there to follow me you know because i certainly wasn't i was just bloody throwing shit at the, at, the, at the wall and seeing what sticks you know but um it's come up a, a long long way um and uh, i think the unit and i hope others uh, other areas have um have benefited from that i like i like to think i hope anyway
1: and that was 2012
0: 13 period did you say yeah, it was prob- probably before then. You know, we we were we were talking about that, but that was two thousand and thirteen was when uh, when when the first kind of proposal went up, uh, and uh, there was you know PDIs were certainly coming through and inspirational. I met with quite a number of PDIs that were trying to move the needle and not having much success trying to you know the system. Um, but uh, apart from them, I, there, there wasn't too much being you know. Pushed back
1: on Yeah Um, yeah. My last trip was 2012 Was the opso And I I must say There was some of the Some of the older guys In your FE I saw doing yoga In the gym And I was like Who the fuck does yoga When they come You know what the TK gym was like It was It's a pretty brutal place (laughs) Yeah Um you know, lifting-wise and workout intensity-wise, et cetera, et cetera. And I was certainly part of that back back in the, in the day as well. But when I saw people do oh, – so I'm an avid yogi myself now, but you don't yeah, understand okay. the benefits yeah, the of it pretty- until you until you get to that point. So it was just interesting yeah. to see that, you know, back then there were some – there were some forward-thinking guys um, from your organisation that were started well, to do but They yoga. were the
0: women. So that was um, Ange Uphill in particular – uh, but the physios uh, were introducing that and um, not only as um, rehab, but as uh, remedial and, and restorative type of approaches. So, it, and it, it, as I said, it took a little while and, I, you know, from probably around 2010, there was a real move for that. Uh, we'd been, we, we went across for the US briefs um, and uh, they were, they had a, uh, I think they had a ballet Teacher on the books to help guys with um, with their CQB and getting great results. You know, we throw we throw a lot of people away in the in the past who are probably perfectly capable, brilliant decision makers, but just because they couldn't fire twenty and ten um they were sacked mm. and uh I, I i even back then i'd look at that and go well hold on train a monkey to shoot seriously you know let, let's and with all the optics and everything these days it's bloody but you know and the practicing every
1: day the amount of rounds you've got etc like you know one one bloody operator shoots the whole three, three brigades allocation every year
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> plenty, that's right and, look, I, I think, and and there is there is merit in that and preparedness and all the rest of it but it's you know I, I think we are coming towards we're still we're still a little unenlightened but I think we're moving uh, moving our way gradually towards the fact that we want the brain we don't want the body you know the body we can train and and short sure, there's a limit in that but we get sucked into kit and guns that's all I heard about and particularly by 2013 the unit. Had become this uber martial focused, and we were forgetting about the brain and personality and cognitive diversity. We almost we become this homogenous group of you know, dare I say it, in parts, knuckle dragging gunslingers, and I think that is counter to what the soft narrative I think uh, was and. Should be or could be, uh, and that 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 will be a controversial statement. I know that in in different parts, but um, I think the brain is the most important thing to to, and the body will will come with it. It's a great little segue, mate. How did you get into your psychology degree? Uh, I, I did, well. I was unfinished business from year twelve, but so I was uh, I was probably always heading back to it. So uh, life goal one, um, I think it's the most interesting of all topics uh humans and the psychology of humans we've got no idea what we're doing so it's a great it's it's easy to look as if you know what you're talking about inside psychology because no one's got a fucking clue what's going on <laughs> and and it's and it also it's the parent or the partner of philosophy which i think um you know we haven't when you really go back and read the ancients and not even the, that the ancients just read more modern and postmodern kind of philosophy um, we haven't come a long far a long way since three or four, or five thousand years ago in, in thinking and understanding. Um, somehow we think we know better. We're surrounded and drowning in data that no one has a clue what to do with. Uh, but I think there's some there's some staples in the, the philosophical and the psychology, you know, older psychology or or, or psychology from the past that um, I find most enlightening and still relevant today. Um, but I, yeah, I love it. I, I, I and it gives you permission to to, to to uh um you know be a contemplator and a bit of a wanker, you know, to to think about all the esoteric stuff that uh, everyone thinks is not important. And I disagree. I couldn't disagree uh, more. I think philosophy is more relevant. Well, philosophy is the water we all swim in as human beings. Mm. I think that's an interesting
1: interesting point. Do you find your greatest Benefit now, a greater skill working the Stoughton group is grabbing all that philosophy and all that technical data and, and um, background info about the human brain and breaking it down into simple, easy to understand um, concepts that people can then go and implement.
0: I, I hope so. I, I think I, the strength, I think, I, I, I'm still on my apprenticeship as a civilian, uh, but I am feeling encouraged that I feel more competent and confident each day. But I think the skill I'd like to hone, I'm not sure what skill I'd bring, i leave that for others to uh, to comment on, but uh, the skill I'd love to hone is to be able to sit with people and teams and help them discover themselves and discover their own way. I think that's, I think that's the great skill that psychology, the discipline of psychology teaches you that you might not get in just ad hoc and anecdotal in, you know, instances with people there is the real discipline that's you know psychology is a hard part it's a hard path you know it's a seven-year degree by the time you come out of it with placements and clinical hours I'm not a clinical psychologist but I have done uh, clinical units and and time in the past um and all up you probably you know before you you know, you do your grad year and and whatnot it's a long path but across that it's boring mundane repetitious, ethics, you know, um, uh, research and, uh, and just the, 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 the mundacity of writing reports and deep diving into some of the most boring stuff you can imagine in statistics really does, drive, does train you to become in a discipline. And I, I would put it up there with, you know, martial arts or shooting a gun or um, other, other uh, disciplines. Um, and that allows you, then I think, gives you a really good foundation to then build skills. And mm-hmm. that's where I kind of find myself. And those skills, I think, are being uh, um, improving in the art and the discipline of of helping others discover for themselves what what is important to them and making sense of the world around them. I think that's that's what I hope to hone and I, I hope to bring. Those-
1: As a a guy who's been playing AFL since his very young years and an avid sport player and um, sports fan, as you said um, at the start, I'm really interested to know, would you mind sharing when you go and speak to some of these elite footy teams um, down in Melbourne, what are some of the topics they're yearning for you to cover off on? Like what do the elite sportsmen want to know from you to make themselves even better?
0: Oh, I think it's varies depends if you speak to a, an 18 year old draftee or you speak to a 30 early 30s um, athlete who's looking to leave a legacy mm. I, I can tell you what the hot button topics are in the in the teams we work with we work with AFL teams where we've got a contracted um, to an AFL team at the moment we work with them all season for the last few seasons with a number of them but the hot button the hot button topics are vulnerability so sharing um you know, life stories and uh, in, in some clubs they're called who am I's or heroes and um, and uh, challenges and getting up in front of peers and sharing, you know, pretty powerful personal anecdotes and, and stories from, from their past and uh, and kind of being vulnerable and understanding what that means. And not, it, you know, it's a really fluffy term for, for most people probably, oh, well, it's really, but it's actually a powerful n- neurological tonic. Um, for people to understand that they that uh, they don't they can release the barriers and open up, and uh, when you open up your your mind, and you open up your situational and self awareness, and, and it has multiple uh, benefits. So that's a real real hot hot topic, uh, hot button topic, uh, and also uh, you know understanding um, what. A path to self-development looks like whether it's uh, formal or informal. I think there's a lot more consciousness now. You know, we're on the on the you know we're kind of post-mental health in a way. We we you know there's a lot more there's a lot less stigma around in football clubs in particular that I see anyway uh, than people are willing to go to psychologists share openly, even in the press in some cases. uh so i think that in that kind of post mental health world i, I that's a, a clumsy way to put it but we we're off you know we, we we're settled into mental health as sort a of real thing now i think everybody accept it there's no more deniers or delayers we, we accept it uh i think that uh people are uh, uh, uh you know these athletes are really interested in okay i'm not going to be an athlete forever uh, how do I mitigate the challenges and the, the isolation? And and you know they they get performance managed out the yin yang. They get feedback all the time and nothing more than you didn't make the team this week. You know so they they they're looking for tools to keep positive and stay focused on on the future. And most athletes go out to pasture. Um, I often and, analogize them with horses. You know it only be one in a thousand horses that goes on to race Group One and have a, a long career. And I think that's the same for a lot of athletes I trained for four years to be disappointed. And, um, mm. and so it's a, a tough gig.
1: I've got to agree on the whole vulnerability thing. When I was going through some challenges mentally about a year ago, which crept up, crept up on me after you know being out for eight or nine years, which is, which is a bit weird. When I went and actually sat with my psychiatrist and went through everything just to spill my guts to him, quite frankly, over a three or four week period, it made me feel so good like it was it was so good to get a whole lot of stuff out of my head and out of my heart and tell someone so I absolutely encourage and I'm sure you do as well that if you need to talk to someone about things then go talk because it's not something us boys are very good at
0: normally he- humans aren't <laughs> yeah. you know it sounds like such a simple thing you can walk past you want anyone listening you want a superpower you want an instant soup you want to do something different on monday what are they, what's the what's the saying we used to use um yeah what can you do on Monday to, to to improve your performance? I'll give you I'll give you one for free right now. You don't need to go and spend time with bloody self- helpers or read a dozen books is go and see a psychologist or a qualified coach or or, or debriefer or, or someone of, 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 with with a reputation and, and a track record and set yourself up once a week for a month, then once a fortnight for the next three months and then once a month for the next 12 months and go and debrief. It's that simple. Practice a thing called reflexivity. It's just simple reflection, whether it's your life, whether it's the last day or the last month or week, whatever it is, start practicing reflexivity. If you're a leader, start practicing it with your team. All of your debriefs, all of your meetings are all transactional. What you've done today, what's your last seven, next seven? What, what what objectives are we hitting? KPIs, have we hit goals? Even coaching we do, we kind of tend to gravitate to goals, gravitate to something that's concrete. Spend a bit more time in the informal. You know, go and waste an hour with one of your employees or team member having a coffee and a lunch with them. You know, like. <laughs> Like seriously, this is not not rocket science, and that that that's the that's the key to empathy, vulnerability, emotional intelligence, all these these collective of, of uh, of of you know concepts that are in the zeitgeist at the moment. Um, the key is practicing reflexivity, reflection. It's just and go back to the Stoughton, you know, philosophy, which blisters off or, or, or blend, uh, lends off of stoicism and Spartan lifestyle is. You know, three, four, 5,000 years ago, the philosophers knew that reflection and self-reflection and, and self-assessment was the way forward for for not, not improvement. They don't even give a fuck about improvement or performance enhancement. All they give a shit about is being satisfied and being at peace with the fact that we're lost humans on the edge of a universe and we're all scared of the dark and scared of going to sleep and all the rest of it and we're all trying to figure it out together you know they knew it then it hasn't changed much and all of the tech and everything that we've brought along with us really hasn't given us any more comfort has it like Mm. seriously we're probably more anxious now than we've ever been
1: because all of us are scared of those same things
0: in our own little lunchbox sometimes that's that's right so go and just practice reflection such a powerful cognitive skill and uh, the better you get at it I tell you what, I, uh, I've discovered it way too late, but um, uh, I, uh, I, 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 I credit a lot to my positive aspect. I think to uh, to being able to do that.
1: Yeah. Speaking of which, uh, just quickly, I should have brought it up before when I was told it's probably about my fourth or fifth session with my psych. He said to me, he "Goes, you should write a book." I'm like, "Yeah, maybe I write a book.
0: I'm, it's journaling's, well, journaling's another. You know, it's another. It's it's an extension. That's my, all it is. It's
1: just a physical extension." My wife's a bit scared about what she might read, so I don't know if I'm there yet, hey, mate. Um, let's finish up. Well, I love that's, that's this courage, subject. isn't it? Yeah, yeah it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with it. I'm just going to make sure she's okay with it. Um, hey, two questions for you to finish up, Bane, and Thank you so much for being here. I've loved this chat. What would you say to a young a young person that's about to attempt SA selection now? Uh,
0: yeah, get, get used to spending time by yourself. Uh, get out, That's you know, there's a lot of things I would say to them, you know, uh, buy a bomb of a car, buy a house, any house, anywhere, anytime. Uh, make sure you prime all of your relationships and go out and spend a few nights out in the bush by yourself with with no phones, no lights, no nothing, with a compass and a map and, um, and just see if you can handle being isolated for a start and then uh, then pile on because you're going to be emotionally stressed with on top of that so I think just testing the foundations is good on
1: great advice and um, same question what would you say to someone who's about to separate from from you know doing let's say 10 plus years in the, in the military and becoming a veteran
0: yeah so get Get help, get mentors, uh and and uh but I would push that conversation further. And I'd say this to the uh, someone who's just about to start SA selection is have a plan B. Like transition's a word I've struck from the record here, and even transformation or discharge. I, I, I want to change the language on this. We need to start talking about tapering. So from the moment you join, you're on a journey to exit. And this is a fact, whether you like it or not. And if you think about tapering that journey, and it's only a conversation to start with, but you need to start opening up the vortex because you, you know, in, in 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 athletes' world, you could have an ACL or a career ender tomorrow, and the same could happen in the military. So we need to, we need to change the language on this, sorry, and Robbie, and um, and start having those discussions early on. If you're leaving now. You know, it's not too late but don't be don't try and do it all yourself it's pointless you never did anything by yourself in the military why fucking start now
1: mm, love that mate harry moffat thank you so much for being part of axon's unleashed i promised everyone when we first sat down do not listen you know daniel <laughs> our executive producer just behind me he's just been sitting here shaking his head and smiling the whole time harry so <laughs> you're a bloody you're a great man harry you keep doing awesome things mate you're <laughs> you're you're, you're, a, you're a, um you're an inspiration to many of us you probably don't know that but mate, uh, it's great to see you really, really succeeding. Um, I love it that in fact you're down there immersed in now, so that high level corporate, high level sporting arena. And you know what, good things, you know, good things come to you, mate. And I hope there's plenty more on the way.
0: Thanks, thanks, Robbie. I appreciate it. Thank you for your service, mate. And I uh, wish you all the best for the podcast and the business. And um, and thanks to Daniel too.
1: Good on you, mate. Righto. Thanks everyone. Have a great day. See you later.